On this week's episode, we open the pod bay doors with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Is this movie just one lazy river? Is the monolith the main character? And y'all get a load of that cute space baby Dave? Find out now you're listening to 24 Flames Per Second. Hello, everybody. Welcome to 24 Flames Per Second, the podcast that roasts the films we love most. I am Hal 9000, your host, and this is Robert Spiewak, actually. Everybody, welcome to uh, 24 Flames Per Second, as I already said in my best approximation of a Hal 9000 voice. Uh, This is, uh, I already said it all. Hal already said it all. Um, This week... On the show, welcome for joining us. Thank you for joining us. We're doing uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and uh, we're excited to just dive into this one. This one finally floated to the top of our stack of, uh, of movies to go after and um, argue about, so we're, uh, we're really excited to... Uh, have everybody here halfway through um, halfway through May with us. Um, and so, yeah, I hope everybody's, you know, quarantines are going well. Uh, if you are still choosing, I guess it's a choice to, uh, to do that. And if you're choosing to not do that and go out, um, fuck you. We're never going to make it to the future with shit like that going on. So uh, be healthy, be safe, everybody. And we're going to jump into uh, the show this week. And um we're still uh, just in other 24 Flames news. We are still um, kind of working out the kinks with, uh, you know, movies are premiering, streaming now rather than in theaters. And so we're um, over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash 24 Flames pod. We're still um, on track planning to do um, a hot take uh, this week, this weekend. Um, for those of you that are helping support our show, we, we love you and thank you. Um, and so that'll be a a review right after I get out of my living room chair, I guess. Um, and so, uh, yeah, keep me on the lookout. Um, still kind of waiting to see what movies are, are releasing that way. So, um, we'll, uh, just stay tuned to our social media and you'll find, you'll find out, you'll see. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. Thank you again for listening to the show. We're going to, we're going to jump right into it. Um, 2001. We're going to jump right into 2001, starting with, across the city for me, the Frank to my Dave this week, Chris Pepperhambrick. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried really hard to find a like a, a another named character, but yeah. Frank and Dave just seem to be the most appropriate, appropriate I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that probably works. Unless, I mean, I think those, I think those apes had names, some of them, like in the, cre- in the credits or behind the scenes or something, but I didn't do the research to find find out. So yeah, that's not really um, where, where my research tended either. So we're okay. that's fine. Yeah. Nameless apes at the dawn of man. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, good to have you here. Uh, did you watch the movie this week? I have to confess. I did not watch the movie this week. Um, oh, okay. I I do feel like I've seen this movie a lot. Um, okay. And the fact that the past couple times I saw it was like in seventy millimeter at the cinema, yes. I kind of wanted to keep that in my as sure. my, as my uh, my my 
groundwork for it. So kind of point of reference. Yeah. But I did do some background documentary watching and some uh, okay. refreshed myself on the history of the film. So right on. Um, well, what is some of that history? If you would mind sharing. Uh, there's like way too much for one podcast, but um, <laughs> I think that probably the most relevant thing is uh, the fact that Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke wrote this movie um, and the novel concurrently. So it's not based on a book and the book is not a novelization of the movie. Um, they collaborated from the beginning on the plot. Wow. However, during the course of that, they kind of diverged in what they thought the story was about and what it meant. And it resulted in um, a film that explains uh, a lot less than the book does. So Clark wanted a more explicit um, and overt meaning to be conveyed, whereas Kubrick was really into, um, I mean, he had something he was trying to say, but he was really devoted to the idea that the audience needs to like find it um, and mm and that whatever interpretation they come to is important for them to come to. So uh, that's why if you read the novel, there's a lot that goes into why Hal mis malfunctions and um, what exactly is happening at the end. And he's much more explicit about it. Um, hmm. but I thought that was interesting, both from a, like, as you're trying to analyze the film, I think that kind of comes into like authorial intent and all of this other stuff. Yeah. But also just that mode of collaboration is really unusual when it comes to filmmaking. Um, so I just thought that was a really interesting way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I, I know that, yeah, I know that the, the history of this movie is, is controversial and, and, uh, rumor filled and also just history recorded history filled. It's just, I, I'm sure there's, you know, more than we could really jump into um in 40 50 minutes correct um but uh but yeah i mean we'll get we'll get into it more but that's that's all good stuff i mean i i think i have not read the book and i'm just like have always been intrigued so maybe maybe quarantine time is time to read it <laughs> um well anyways very good thank you um i think we are going to keep things moving we're going to jump into our panels this week starting with the roasting panel and uh first up we have Seattle Cinephile. You can find her on Instagram at C 33 Alexandra Calero. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm I'm pretty good. I'm hanging in there, you know, social distancing or really just staying in my house. Yeah, yep. sure. <laughs> As it goes. In your yeah. uh let's see. Um I forget what the little freezer pods that the other people were in in the in the spaceship, but maybe it's kind of hibernation like that. chamber. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um well, regardless, it's good to, good to have you here with us Happy um, to be on the here. show. Yeah. Um, and the other roaster this week, theater father, teacher of the children. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at btaves, Brian Taves. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Excited Absolutely. to roast this film. Gonna roast it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Good to have you here. We're gonna jump right on into it. Um, and so that jumps us over to the defense this week. He is a uh, a writer, a teacher, and a Godzilla expert. And his name is Ian Coleman. Hello, Robert. I am very glad to be here right now. <laughs> That's good. Your your howl is better than mine. <laughs> it is. It is very nice to be present with you all today, <laughs> defending one of my favorite movies. Oh boy. Well, yeah, I'm bringing the fire. 
Oh, good. Very good. Um, anyways, yeah, no, that's great. It's good to have you here. Um, and you know how this goes. Your favorite movie. We're going to put your memory to the test. And we're going to start with movie in a minute. Um, and give us the uh, full plot synopsis of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Spoilers and all. And we'll give you a 60-second timer and a three count. Do you feel ready? Yes. You don't need to take a stress pill and think it over? Nope. I think I'm I'm ready to go. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, I think let's let's get this thing kicked off. Um, here we go. In three, two, one, go. All right. So it's uh, it's prehistoric Earth in the animal that will uh, eventually evolve into humanity is having kind of a tough time of things. They're being hunted, uh, competing over scarce resources. Um, one day, a uh, pack of them wakes up to find a strange black monolith near their uh, dwelling. Uh, they touch it and gain the ability to use tools. <clears throat> And so uh, flash forward or jump cut like a few million years away. And it's the year 1999 and we're in space. Um, and uh, another monolith is dug up uh, on the moon base and some scientists touched it and it beams a transmission to Jupiter. Uh, 18 months later, uh, there's a mission organized uh, on the ship Discovery led by doctors uh, David Bowman and Frank Poole and the ship's computer HAL. Uh, to go investigate this uh, transmission. Um, on the way, Hal uh, kills the crew after learning that Dave and Frank are planning to deactivate him. Uh, Dave manages to survive by himself, and he deactivates Hal. And you're out uh, of time. Almost got to the, the but, freaky Stargate part. Yeah, almost. But, I was um, so ready for it. But but yeah, Dave, uh, Frank gets uh, killed. Yeah, Hal kills Frank too. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> Dave continues on the mission, uh, leading the ship by himself and uh, gets to he gets to Jupiter. No, he keeps flying, right? Yeah, well, he, he arrives in Jupiter yeah. space. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, then he goes beyond the infinite um, and essentially flies through some kind. It's a wormhole, a stargate, whatever you want to call it, um, and sees lots of pretty colors and ends up um, in a very fancy room with a very old version of himself and then a version of himself in a robe and then a version of himself in a bed and then a baby version of himself and then the baby version of himself is in space and then the movie's over. Uh, after, well, I guess he does, the monolith does appear in the room also. So uh, one, more sight, one more sighting of the monolith and then baby Dave, uh, a space baby, and then the movie, and then that's it. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, and that's 2001, a space odyssey and what an odyssey it was. Um, <clears throat> but, but yeah, good job, Ian, for what you, you got, you got most of the way through the movie. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's the plot. We are going to take a quick break and Ian, when we come back, we're going to get your opening statements while you're here defending 2000, the futuristic movie that takes place in 2001. It's a space odyssey. Everybody, we will be right back. Hey, listen up, all you filmmakers out there. If you have a film that you're ready to share with the world, consider submitting it to the 14th Annual National Film Festival for Talented Youth, or NIFTY. Submissions are open now, so send in your film today. Go to nffty.org submit. And we're back, everybody. Welcome back to 2001 A Space Odyssey. 19 takes place 19 years ago. Uh, right before the break, Ian Coleman made it up to the Stargate, but not through it on movie in a minute. And uh, now we're here to uh, get your opening statements. Ian, 
were you here defending 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, so, yeah, this is one of actually my favorite movies of all time. I think it's um, I think one of just like the purest distillations of like what cinema is as an art form, just in terms of like, you know, taking sound and image and, you know, special effects and acting and just kind of like putting them all together, you know, to like make meaning. I think it's just a very like it's it's a movie that puts me in a state of mind that not a lot of movies put me in and that it's kind of just like it's less a like experience that like I'm have my hand held through and it's more like an experience to just kind of like bask in and surrender to and I think it's just utterly transporting in a way that like not a lot of movies make me feel um you really have to pay attention to it you really just have to like you know, put all distractions aside and just like watch this movie and really experience it. So um, I think it presents a very like, you know, still beautifully realized vision of the future, which, you know, despite this movie being made in the 60s, um, the effects have aged like so well. And everything about this movie, I think, is uh, beautifully put together, just like from the composition of every single image to every single soundtrack choice. And just the way that like you're left thinking about it afterward and like the impression that it just like leaves on you like it, it's one of those experiences that like really shakes me every time i watch it and the, its power never diminishes even through all the repeat viewings i've had of it nice nice very good um okay i think um we can uh, we can turn this over to the roasters um and i forgot to say this before the show but the little hand button is the raise your hand button so um, if anybody wants to jump in next raise your hand with the button um and uh yeah i think let's just start with the plot of the movie roasters who would like to go first is there a plot to the movie? That's I mean, a great question. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that there is because I feel like um, because so much is left unexplained, uh, there are four separate stories going on. There are no characters, so there's no character development. Um, it it's just It strikes me as such an experimental film, so I don't know that you could really say that there's any sort of plot to it. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, to kind of bounce off of uh, Alexandra's point, I think like for me, you know, I have to give Kubrick and the creative team props for really establishing an excellent tone and visuals for the film. I think I think that's unquestionably like one of the best parts of the, of the film. However, like <clears throat> he does an excellent job establishing tone and mood at the top of the film with like opening music and the title sequence. And I do enjoy the spectacle of the film, but then my question becomes like, what purpose does it serve? And I feel like, you know, this kind of gets into the place of like, it, it feels very uh, masturbatory to me. It feels very like pretentious. And um, I feel like the film could have, you didn't, it doesn't have to be a two and a half hour long movie to get the point across like this, you could have cut like minutes and an hour off of this film. Um, and like, in terms of like how that relates to the storytelling, I, I, I tend to agree with Alexandra. I'm like, I don't really know. It feels like it's four separate films. I don't really know where, what the patterns are, like what the narrative structure or the focal point is really supposed to be. I feel like the monolith kind of serves as that through line, but I just want a little bit more clarity about 
what that is so that I can buy into this really elaborate world that the filmmakers are creating. Um, Ian, go ahead. So I think that it's it's less of a story in the like conventional way that we understand that. Like, you know, we, we think of like a story as like it's a series of events like happening to a character and they, you know, grow and change throughout that experience. I, it's less of a like story in that sense. And it's more of like a tapestry woven of like many different parts that are like brought together into like a greater whole. And I, I do disagree with the fact that there is like I, I do disagree with the um uh, statement that there's not a through line for this movie and I think that there actually is a main character and that that main character is like the entire human race and we sort of like get to s- essentially see you know like the entire point of the movie is like tracing the evolution of the human of the human race like from you know it's beginning to like this point that it could go to you know if we <clears throat> like this sort of transcendental state that we could, that we could reach. And I think that there, there is a through, there is development in the sense that we get to see the human race evolve into like many different forms throughout this movie, starting up as apes or whatever you would call that thing. Um, going into like, you know, kind of quote unquote modern civilization where we're kind of like establishing a foothold in space to, you know, the potential transcendental future of our species. When we reach out into the cosmos and discover you know, the uncharted depths of creation. Um, I think that there, there is a through line. And I do think that the audio, that the movie gives you everything you need to piece it together. I, I like, obviously like, you know, reading the book will bring some more clarity in terms of like what's going on in words. But I think that the movie really gives you everything you need to understand it right off the bat. Like it's, it's pretty clear from the first scene, like how the monolith works. Like it's a, you know, it's a, a thing that like kind of jumpstarts evolution and you know like allows the human brain to evolve and there are all these visual cues that are like reinforced throughout the movie and i think that like the more you watch it the more you see just like how purposeful how purposeful these things are and like how many clues are given to you the viewer to help you piece it together um that said it definitely doesn't hold your hand through them it kind of expects you to do that work of piecing it together yourself but i do think that you know that experience of having done that as a viewer it makes me feel a lot more rewarded than if the movie had just like explained it to me verbally i feel like it would have lost something um alexandra go ahead well i guess i would disagree about it the idea that the monolith um you know is a jump start for human evolution or anything like that because i i feel like if it's about evolution of technology because you know the apes encounter it and then use tools why don't we have more evidence of that? It jumps so quickly from the development of tools to space that it feels, it, I just, I, it's still that disconnect there that I, I don't think that there's enough evidence. And maybe, you know, I like to think that I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but this movie makes me feel like I'm dumb um, because I, I don't mind doing some work in science fiction, but this movie's asking for me to do way too much work. Yeah, Brian. And then I think it begs the question, like going off of Alexandra's point, like, does that make it a successful film and what it's what it's been advertised as? You know, it's advertised as this like, you know, explorative adventure film. And it's advertised as like this kind of big budget, uh, like, you know, crowd pleasing sort of like space odyssey, like literally in the title of the film. But I mean, like, I, I just don't understand. Like, I don't. I think the question becomes like, is that 
does that make it successful? Like, is it successful in what it does in, in its storytelling and in, in its spectacle? And it's clear that it, it, it wasn't successful because it was polarizing when it was released and audiences walked out of the theater. I think there's like a famous quote where Rock Hudson, you know, famous actor at the time was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, what, what am I supposed to be watching right now? And I feel like if you're going to be exploring these like in, you know, in-depth, you know, themes about, you know, evolution and, you know, existentialism, like you have to let the audience in a little bit more. And I think that, you know, I, 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 I don't think you have to talk down to an audience. However, I think that there needs to be a little bit more of a bite, bite-sized uh, elements when you're, um, when you're presenting these complex ideas. And I think, I think it can really be alienating and kind of supports what Alexandra is saying, like it make, make you feel kind of dumb and make you feel like, am I not a part of this club? Can I not enjoy this film because I don't get it or don't understand it? I don't know if that makes it a successful movie. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Ian. I, I, I guess I just disagree with the idea that the movie is like, you know, depriving its audience of like essential information. In fact, I would say that like, if you, you know, go back, if, if like, it, it definitely is a movie that does take multiple viewings to like really kind of sink your teeth into. I think that, that, that first viewing is definitely kind of like a, you know, it's a, it's, it is a jarring experience because like, I mean, I remember the first time I saw this, like I was nine years old and, you know, like I saw there was a poster of this movie outside of the Cinerama. We were vacationing in Seattle and I told my dad I wanted to watch it because I thought it would be like a science fiction adventure film. And my dad warned me and he was like, this is not what you think it is, but if you really want to see it, OK. And so we did. And I was definitely really jarred by that experience. But I think the more that I watched it, the more that I saw like the movie does explain like kind of how its world works. It does we do have like exposition of like what the how what what the how nine thousand is how the ships work, um, and again like there are a lot of like visual cues that also explain like how the monoliths work right. They, <clears throat> I mean I don't want to like you know be like just kind of like turn this into like a you know forty minutes of me talking and like de <laughs> ex- explaining like what's going on in the movie. Cause I do think that like a valuable part of that experience is figuring that out yourself. But I do think that the movie does give you what you need in like quite a few explicit ways that I think you'll discover upon like rewatching and just like looking for those small details that you wouldn't notice because like, you know, again, the experience is a little off putting the first time and just because it's a lot to take in. Alexandra. I think it's asking a lot of an audience to say you need to watch this movie multiple times to get it if it's not engaging the first time. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, there's, it's, I think it's really problematic to be like, no, no, guys, stick with me. Watch it like 12 times and then, you know, you'll get on board. If I'm not interested the first time, I'm not watching it another time. Regardless of you telling me, the more I watch it, the more I'll understand. Hmm. Strong take. You don't want to give up eight hours to watch 2001 over and over again. Hmm. I, I mean, who has the time? Who has the fucking time to watch we, it? Hey, like, we all have the time right now. Well, right now, yeah. But I mean, like, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, but seriously, though, like, right. I mean, but seriously, though, like, who has the time to, like, sit down and read? Like, even some of the movies I 
it's a chore. Like, I don't know. I, I would argue that like sitting down to watch a film over and over again to get its meaning is such a, is such a fucking chore. And it's so like, it's such a fuck you to the audience to be like, Oh, haha, Like you didn't get it the first time, sit down and watch it again. Or it's just like, it's like, whatever, dude, like I don't have the time. I don't care. Like, like invite <laughs> me into the world more, please. I mean, so, I guess if you're thinking of like, I mean, chores by definition are like you doing like a task that's not like that interesting or that you get that much out of just like for the sake of getting it done. I really think that like the feeling that you get when you re-experience this movie is like one of discovery because I think that there's just like so much to, I mean, it, it, it isn't even that like what is actually going on is that complicated and that there's really like that much like you know, hidden depth to really like dig into. Like we're not reading like a dairy dot text. Like essentially what this is, is it's, it's essentially just like a moving painting showing like, you know, what humankind is, where it came from, what it is now. And like the possibilities of what it could become like at its most fundamental level, like that's it. Um, I think that like where the things are, you know, to be discovered is like examining just the like, the the cues that allow you to understand like the specifics of like how we get to that ultimate message and i think that like i mean my experience was like i did get the basics of it the first time but i think that like what the film leaves you to discover through like additional viewings is like those fine details that really allow you to piece together like the full picture of what's going on and allow you to kind of like solve the i, I wouldn't even call this a puzzle in fact i wouldn't even say it's like a math problem to be solved and it's more of just like a it's, it's a thing to experience. It's a thing to just kind of like feel. And it's a thing that changes the more that you experience it. It's like a lazy river at a water park. Exactly. <laughs> um, I know, Chris, you had something to say. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think that part of this might have to do with kind of the experience. You're talking about the experience of watching the film, right? And that, you know, if it feels like a chore, you're not going to do it again. That completely makes sense. Um does it does it matter how you see the film? And I'm asking this because um, we're talking about this in 2020 um, when if I wanted to, I could watch this on like a three inch screen on my phone. But those didn't exist when Kubrick made the film. And I'm not saying like, oh, you know, it is definitely a point of privilege to be able to go to Cinerama and watch it, obviously. But do you guys think that that has something to do with one's experience of the film? Because it is so visual, um, the the script is sort of like famously bland, um, kind of on purpose. Uh, and it's so uh, focused on like the visual effects and the visual cues. Um, does it matter how like the context in which you see it? Um, Alexander, if you want to go first. I, I don't know that it does. I, you know, admittedly, the first time that I saw it, I saw it at home um, on a TV, so not in the theater. Um, but I, it goes back to the storytelling aspect and is there enough there to grab you? I mean, I the first time I watched it, I was like, what the hell is happening? And I called my mom and was like, do I need to be high to understand what is going on? <laughs> high like in the atmosphere, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Let's have, uh, we'll have Brian go again and then Ian will have you respond to both their points. Yeah, I feel, I feel like the film is the film. I mean, like if I, I know I, I like, I'm not a film purist. So like wherever you see the film is 
wherever you see it. I mean, I don't, I, yes, I, I can understand the argument of seeing it at Cinerama versus seeing it on your laptop at home. But I mean, the content of the film is the content of the film. I feel like, you know, I, I don't think, I don't necessarily know if that changes. I'm, I'm just putting myself in the, the headspace of somebody who's just like trying to watch this film for the first time or like trying to just get a grasp on this. So like, that is not like the, I'm not putting myself in the shoes of a cinephile. Um, like the average viewer, but like, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the idea of like this, this film kind of being an inside joke in the sense that like, I do think that you, there needs to be some altering of your mind with psychotropic or hallucinogenic drugs to appreciate this film because it like it, 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 it requires you to sort of, remove logic in some form i don't know like it requires you to remove sort of like this idea of like these conventional notions of storytelling and like i just think it's i again i i you know i think you just it requires a, so much of the viewer to put yourself in that mindset and I, I think the people i think there were people who you know that rebelled against this film and had a, like a cult following with people who have healthy relationships with psychotropic drugs especially in that last sequence, the last 30 minutes of the film. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think again, it's like, there's, I feel like film has to be in some form or another, like accessible to people. And if you're asking them to jump through all these hoops and you're just asking them to kind of go through all these like different measures to experience this movie. Um, I, I don't know if it succeeds as a film. Uh, ooh, Ian. I guess I actually would argue that the environment that you uh, see this film in does make a difference. I would say that like the ideal way to experience it is in like a theater with like a really good sound system. And I'm very privileged and fortunate that that was my first experience with the movie. Like I can't even tell you how incredible it was to like watch this film at like 11 years old with no preconceived notion of what it was and to have that soundtrack blast through like the Cinerama sound system. But I think what's more important, though, is just that you watch it in a state where you're not, like, distracted. Um, <clears throat> I think I, I did get just as much out of it, like, watching it last night, like, you know, in my living room with the lights off. But I do think that, like, it does demand a certain, like, this isn't the kind of movie where you can, like, look at your phone and, like, do something else while you're watching it. I think it will take you out of the movie in a really fundamental way and kind of ruin that experience. Um, but and I guess that, like, I'll, I'll push back on the notion that like you have to jump through these hoops to like really get the movie i think more of what this movie is actually asking you to do is strip yourself down like kind of like remove your you know expectations of like what a story is, or like what you know like a traditional narrative is it's asking you to kind of like remove your expectations of like what you expect to, to find in like a science fiction adventure movie and it really just forces you to like surrender yourself to what you're watching and to like kind of just sit with that feeling that it leaves you even if like you're not quite able to define it yet i think that like the experience of this movie like is about that process of just like stripping yourself down as a viewer and really opening yourself up to like this new kind of experience that this movie is pretty unique in providing mm -hmm. brian go ahead yeah want to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about like you know we we talked about the storytelling um talk a little bit about like the characters and like the characters of the film and i think that you know for me as a viewer i want to be i want to be a little invested in their story and like 
you know, Alexandra, you brought this up earlier, like how you you were making the argument to me earlier that the characters are not very well developed and I don't know, there's not like I just if I don't feel if I feel like the characters are more like props versus like actual human beings and and you know ian you mentioned like the whole human race is sort of this is this main character but like how is that possible when the characterization the people that are portrayed in the film don't even really act like human beings to begin with there's like they're just one-dimensional kind of flat like characterizations i I don't i don't know if i buy that alexandra well yeah going off of that um you know, the characters, they're so wooden, there's nothing to really latch on to. So even in, in kind of every sequence, um, if we're supposed to maybe try and identify or have something that we're going, okay, I'm rooting for, or I'm invested in, there's, there's nothing there to la- to grab onto as a viewer. Um, I can understand the idea of like surrendering yourself to an experience, but there has to, I, I, as a viewer feel like there has to be more than just giving myself over Um, especially when you then put human characters on there and try and tell me that these people have some significance or meaning. Hmm. Yeah. Ian. I I do think that, I mean, the film is very purposeful in kind of how it depicts people as very flat and how it doesn't really give you a lot of time to get to know these characters personally. One, because that would have required, that would have like changed the focus of the film. Like I'll go back to the idea that this is less of a, you know, traditional narrative, and it's more of like a a painting or a tapestry. And I think that like having that, you know, focus on like these people's emotional lives would have kind of, you know, changed the, it, it, it would have changed the recipe in a way that would have changed like what the movie is. Like, I mean, you know, that those are more the kind of movies we see nowadays with like Interstellar and Ad Astra and like all these space movies that like juxtapose, you know, like these very like, you know, intimate human experiences with like the vastness of the universe. But like that's again, like not really what this movie is trying to do. I think that the whole experience, you're, you're not really meant to feel tethered to any one particular person. In fact, I'd say you're kind of meant to feel untethered from like any one particular like focal point. And you're meant to just kind of like kind of hover along and like experience this like as it's presented. And I will say though, that like the, the film does position you in a way as a viewer to empathize with these people, like in the way that like the, the, the language of the cinema, like conveys their experience, like the scenes where they're like drifting around in space, I think are fucking terrifying. And I think it really puts you in the shoes of like that experience of just like drifting along in this like void where you can die very very easily i would say that like those experiences are full of terror and i think that like so there is a lot of emotion in this movie but it kind of comes less from like the experiences of a particular person and it's more of the way that like the movie presents them to you like you know cinematically i'd say that's where the emotion of the film is that's the emotional center brian yeah i I, like i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna go back on the sort of keep harping on the characterization uh, arguments of like, so you've got like, I feel like the only three dimensional character in this film is like, is Hal is the character of Hal. And like, I just, and this goes back to my, what I was saying earlier of this being really four. it feels like four separate films. Like it feels disjointed in this way. And for me, it's like, if Hal is supposed to be like, if he's supposed to sort of embody this like technological advancement and like, having like you know 
you know, one-upping the human race in some way. Like, how does his characterization, like, we spend so much time, like, understanding what this, what this character is. Like, how does that intersect with sort of, like, with the monolith and with, and with the journey that we're supposed to go on? I guess, like, I'm still, I feel like it's two different motifs and characters in this film. Like, well, sorry, more like props or motifs in this film that don't really, like, line up for me and like i feel like hal is the character i feel the most like like i understand the most of like oh okay it makes you know he serves as this kind of purpose and in terms of the storytelling but i just i don't understand like why why focus so much on the characterization of this inanimate object and how does it intersect with the rest of the storytelling of the film i guess i i I fail to understand how there's those things are connected yeah, Alexandra. Well, kind of going back to the um, the props thing, it's they all feel like set pieces. I mean, essentially, even the characters feel like they're just set pieces into this, you know, designed to just be there because we'd expect to see humans in 2001 uh, journeying to the stars or something. And so I feel like whatever the point of the movie is or whatever the story of the movie is supposed to be, if it's existential or about evolution or enlightenment, if you're not going to invest in characters that are accessible or understandable, you know, we're human beings, they're human beings, you know, there's got to be somebody we can connect to. And so like Brian's saying, if the only fully developed character is a computer system, um, how are we as humans supposed to be like, Oh, this is totally about um, enlightenment or, or, you know, the next great step in understanding the universe. Brian, I'm going to let Ian respond just because we have to unmask right after that. Um, I think that like Hal is just like, he, he, he is another like manifestation of like the film's like motif of like, you know, intelligence and evolution. Like he is essentially just like another step that we like the human race take. Like, you know, like we start off in this place of, you know, like whacking bones with other bones. And then like we jump to this point where we are essentially like, making other humans like artificially. And I think that the, like the flatness of the characters juxtapose against Hal again, like I'll say that is something that's done on purpose. I think that we are kind of meant to feel jarred at that moment when, you know, Dave is deactivating Hal and he's like going about the business all coldly. And we see that like Hal is reacting actually very emotionally. And I think that that's what, what that's meant to make us feel is it's like, we are in this position where we are essentially like making like intelligence like something with intelligence and feeling in a way that we were like not really prepared for and like don't really know how to like contain or comprehend and like that is a question that's raised like at the very beginning of that sequence is it's like does how have feelings and intelligence and i think that that in that particular moment i think is so powerful because we have like you know how's emotions like juxtaposed with like dave's kind of like cold calculating businessy flatness hmm well so uh, there's there's my justification (laughs) laying it out on a plate um yeah so we've about reached time to unmask everybody uh take those helmets off um and uh yeah let's go around we'll talk about how we uh how we really feel ian why don't you go first um i really love this movie it is uh i I haven't been wearing a mask at all (laughs) uh this is one of my favorite movies i think that um I think it, it really taught me how to be a better film goer. Like I, I saw it at kind of like this age. I, I would say that like, this was like, 
this movie was kind of a turning point for me in the way that like I understand like what a movie can be. Like I think that like watching this movie really shook me and it like drove me to like read all four of the books and like experience the story that way. It drove me to like get comfortable with the idea of movies that didn't like necessarily hold your hand and like really put you the viewer in an active position and kind of like trying to figure out, you know, the construction of the film yourself. I think that it really like affected me profoundly as like a moviegoer. And for that reason, I think it's, it's always going to be one of my favorite movies. And I think that every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. And it's just like a really great experience to kind of surrender to. Nice. Uh, Alexandra. Well, I think the visuals of the movie are stunning and the fact that it holds up now to the stuff that we see in uh, filmmaking, science fiction, that kind of thing is really impressive. The music is great. Hal is an impressive character. I want a, a movie that has Hal as the main villain because who doesn't love a villain that you can't argue with? And I absolutely hate this movie. It is, it's just, <laughs> it's, I can't stand it. It's like, it's un so unbelievably boring and <laughs> alienating and I don't ever want to have to watch it again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Brian. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, um, yeah, I was playing the role of the arguer debate, uh, roaster on this one. I, I like this movie quite a bit. Um, I think Ian nailed the arguments and I agree with probably 99.9% .9 of what Ian was saying throughout this whole thing. Um, High five. Yeah, man. It's such a good movie. I, I totally get where Alexandra's coming from too. It's like, it is, it's just, it's, I mean, film is fucking subjective. Like it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Like one of my favorite films is Magnolia and like people will roll their eyes even probably right now about that. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's a daring film. It's a feat that move the, you know, the, you know, I was watching it with Maureen earlier today and we were just like, wow, like this, the, the, uh, special effects hold up, the visuals hold up. And like, really it isn't a movie about characterization and it's not, it's not a conventional narrative. It's, it is a piece. It's like a, it's a piece of music. It's an, it's a, it's an opera. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great film. And, um, it's a film that like, uh, I think you could watch with or without uh, psychotropic drugs. And maybe <laughs> I may or may not have watched this film with, with or without psychotropic drugs. So I'll plead the fifth on that one. Anyway. Yeah, it's a good movie. <laughs> uh, Chris. Uh, I love this movie. Um, I, this movie is, I've been trying to figure out why I have this feeling, but it feels mm -hmm. like, uh, like it, it kind of exists on its own as this work that came out of God knows where, like I feel the same <laughs> way about the book Lord of the Rings um, where it's really hard for me to take it apart because it's such a complete work for me mm. in and of itself. Um, yeah. I just, I think it's glorious. Um, and I also, one of the things that I really appreciate about it is kind of why I led with um, the thing about Kubrick, not wanting to spell out the interpretation is that I don't think I need one. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I feel like it definitely is an experience. Um, and it's an experience that like, I've, you know, been lucky enough to have multiple times and really value. I just think it's, um, it, it's kind of like going to a, a really nice gallery or a really good opera. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've um I've seen this movie like two or three times now. Um and I I think I you know, I come to enjoy it more every time, Ian. It's so funny that you mentioned that just like you, you just sponge up more out of it every time you watch it. Like there's there's something in and I mean and I'm I love Stanley Kubrick anyways. I love his work and um I think that there's just something in the little details of of this movie particularly that just like uh, on repeat viewings, you know, you notice one other little thing and you're like, oh, that's because and this and you start to connect the dots. And like, um, I just think that it's it, it I, as I was watching it this time, I was like, this isn't a movie that was trying. He wasn't trying to make like a movie. He was trying to make an art piece. And that's what it is. It's this like one of the few like just hugely um you like big ubiquitous like experimental films that people are aware of and like and that and that's what it is and of course like with all experimental film like some people are gonna like it some people are gonna hate it like so like i understand that uh i i told i also get where alexander's coming from it, it is kind of boring like if you're just not vibing on it like i i totally see that <laughs> um but yeah, I don't know. I think that it's um, it's it's just it's but it's crazy how well it's aged too. You know, it's was this uh, sixty years, almost sixty years later, fifty years later. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there was like a fiftieth anniversary re-release or yeah. something last year. Yeah. Um. And so I don't know. I I like it. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, uh, that's gonna do it for this episode, everybody. Um, uh, to, for two thousand one, and yeah, we're gonna continue uh, chatting because there's no end to talking about two thousand one um, on our uh, post show. That's just for our Patreon supporters called Extended Play. Um, and so, if you want to get in on that or a bunch of the other good stuff that's over there, uh, head to patreoncom slash 24 pod and uh, check it out. As I mentioned. Um, at the beginning of the show helps us uh, continue doing what we're doing. And um, also uh, there's a, there's a hot take coming this week. So yeah, go check it out. Um, and mm, thank you for, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, let me, I got to re-pull my notes back up for closing the show. Cause I don't seem to be able to commit it to memory. Um, but, uh, but yeah, everybody, uh, if you have thoughts about 2001 a space odyssey, um, send them to us in shorthand at 24 flames at, <laughs> 24 flames pod at gmail.com or uh, hit us up on social media at 24 flames pod. And um, wherever you listen to podcasts, go and subscribe, leave a rating, a review, uh, find us on good pods. Um, and uh, yeah, help more, it'll help more people find the show helps us make it better. Uh, this episode of 24 flames per second was produced and hosted by me, Robert Spiewak. It's co-hosted by Chris Pepper Hambrick. The panels this week, the roasters were Alexandra Calero and Brian Taves. And on the defense, Ian Coleman, our show music was composed by Rob Joins and performed by Rob Joins and Will Paulson. And our network and co-op, Party Fish Media, is produced by me, Robert Spiewak, Quasi Phillips, and Will Paulson. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this show. Um, we uh, hope that it's, uh, I don't know, helping you get through get through some quarantine. Um, and so, yeah, everybody, we're going to uh, be back next week with our 150th episode, which... Um, 
to uh i don't remember why we're doing this but um we're doing the spongebob squarepants movie so um it's very very exciting for for some some of us that are on the panel um and uh yeah everybody uh it should be it should be a good one so come on back for that um join us be the goofy goober you know you are and everybody we're gonna um we'll catch it we'll catch you next week for some spongebob where we're it's a it's almost as 180 uh as a move as we can make um and so, yeah, everybody, thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.